Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Is President Biden unifying America or should Democrats be scared because of Virginia? Next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Are you now saying that the United States would not come to Taiwan's defense if attacked? Can you be specific, yes or no? Americans have lost their confidence in President Biden and their optimism for the country. What happens in Virginia will in large part determine what happens in 2022. Because she just said basically, if Yunkin wins, it means a disaster for the Democrats in 22 and 24. It was a famous African-American baseball player in America. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Hi, welcome back to the Monday edition of Vincent Jason Save the Nation. So great to have you with us. Uh, Jason Nichols coming out of another busy weekend and right into a uh, widely watched election in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Some other elections going on as well around the country in New Jersey uh, and New York. There's a big mayoral election, but that seems to be where the focus is, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've also got uh, a lot of stuff going on internationally. The president is overseas right now. I believe he's in Glasgow, Scotland right now, um, talking about climate change. And of course, he has got his administration advocating for him here on the home front. Of course, his poll numbers are suffering. Uh, and I think he needs to get his message out to the American people. And one of the people who has been a messenger right now has been Anthony Blinken, talking about China and the potential of an attack, kind of like what Russia did in Crimea on Taiwan and how the Biden administration would react to that. So let's take a look at, at that clip real quick. If China invaded, your spokesperson said there's no change in U.S. position. So I just want to clarify, has the U.S. committed directly to the Taiwanese government that it will come to Taiwan's defense if China invades? Uh, there is no change in our, in our policy. We've had a long-standing commitment uh, that, uh, by the way, then Senator Biden strongly supported when he was in the United States Senate, uh, a long-standing commitment pursuant to the Taiwan Relations Act to make sure that Taiwan has the means uh, to defend itself. Uh, and uh, we stand by that. The president uh, stood by that strongly. And we want to make sure uh, that no one takes any unilateral action that would uh, disrupt uh, the status quo with regard to uh, to Taiwan. That hasn't changed. You are the Secretary of State, and that was a very, very um, perfect diplo speak. So I just wanted to, for people who don't speak that language, uh, can you clarify what that exactly <laughs> means? Uh, are you now saying that the United States would not come to Taiwan's defense if attacked? Can you be specific, yes or no? Uh, Dana, again, what I can tell you is that we remain committed uh, resolutely committed to uh, our responsibilities under the Taiwan Relations Act, including making sure that Taiwan has the ability to defend itself from any aggression. Okay. So, Vince, what do you think about Anthony Blinken's answer? There? Well, he's, he's threading the needle. He's going back to what the U.S. policy was before Joe Biden declared that the policy was that the United States would rush in and defend Taiwan from invasion. Um, this is that strategic ambiguity that they've uh, leaned on for years. The idea being that uh, we will offer um, supplies and defense and that kind of thing, defense materials, the capability for Taiwan to defend itself. 
rather than uh, a declaration that the United States is going to come sprinting in the moment Taiwan is invaded. Uh, this is just honestly, this is really a product of Joe Biden not understanding how to communicate the strategy, because when he was on when he was on stage with Anderson Cooper on CNN a couple of weeks ago in this town hall, he was asked about it and he said it and he was unequivocal. He's like, yes, we're going to come to their defense. That is our commitment. Right. And uh, the White House had to walk that back saying there's been no change of policy. And this is Anthony Blinken, the latest version of that. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely correct. This is one place where where we agree 100 um, percent. I think that the, the approach is going to be kind of like it was with Ukraine, that we will come and give you the tools uh, to defend yourself. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, you know, I question some of that. Uh, and I'm sure, as, as I've said several times on this show, and you and I have talked about a few times, um, I think that if t uh, China were to attack Taiwan, there would be a cyber response, a strong cyber response, um, rather than a, you know, a hot response. I think Joe Biden, at all costs, wants to avoid getting into another war. Uh, that would be extremely unpopular. And of course, a war with China would be no joke. That would be no game. Mm -hmm. uh, that would literally put the world uh, in danger. Um, I think he believes that Taiwan deserves its, uh, you know, I, I know one thing he's advocated for is Taiwan having uh, a seat in the UN, which China, one of the things China has done incredibly well strategically is to go to a bunch of countries, particularly in Africa, go and uh, give them, you know, low interest or no interest loans in return, getting their votes in the UN. Uh, and getting their support with whatever it is that China wants. Um, you know, when you've loaned me $20 billion to build roads and hospitals and, you know, cement uh, things in, in my country, of course, I'm not going to vote against you. You know, if you gave me a no interest loan, that was kind of like buying my support. Mm -hmm. And it's something that China has done incredibly well. Uh, and the U.S. kind of stood by and just kind of, you know, complained about it. Um, so China is very influential around the world. And if they attack Taiwan, um, I think the U.S. is, you know, their response is going to be the strategic response of, hey, we're going to arm, you know, we're going to uh, give them the resources to defend themselves. The only thing I the thing that I question about that also is in Afghanistan, we gave the Afghan uh uh, the Afghan security forces the ability to defend themselves, and they right. didn't defend themselves with. That's it. right. You know, so you know that is a, is another thing that I think the United States needs to consider moving forward when they're dealing with a lot of these countries. Is does the country have the will to defend itself and it, and its people, um, or these territories or or what have you? Um, so I think uh, the main response will be a cyber response. We'll will be at a cyber war which I think we're already at with a lot of places uh, around the world, you know, Iran, China, places like that. Um, but I think Joe Biden definitely in what he said, he left so much open to interpretation that Anthony Blinken and other members of his administration are having to clean it up. Mm -hmm. Is that, a, do you think this is an issue, a meaningful issue, or is it just kind of a momentary lapse? Uh, I think it was a momentary, you know, uh, lapse in, a, in the way that he 
uh, articulated the position. And, and it wasn't even a big one. It just left a lot open to interpretation. Um, I know the right likes to paint it like he's forgetting things or he's having a senior moment or whatever it is. I don't think it's, this was even close to that. And when we look at the last administration, there were far more moments like that. Then again, the last administration was a lot less scripted than this administration, which you know puts a lot of controls on what Joe Biden says and does not say. Um, but I think this was, you know, this was a, a, a small moment. And I also think that China should have a little bit of concern about how the United States would respond. I think that is a way to deter China and deter mm -hmm. Beijing from acting on Taiwan is we don't know if the United States is going to attack us. You know, um, and, I, and I think that may be a deterrent. We don't know. The United States has not made clear what their response will be. So in some ways, I think Joe Biden's response was the right one, which is, you know, I, I have, you know, I'm going back and forth here, but I think in some ways, China having in the back of their heads, like, are we going to go to World War III? Is, is this worth it? Is Taiwan worth it? Um, I think is, is not all entirely a bad thing, but I think the United States has to really do its due diligence about the Taiwanese, Taiwanese people, how much they're willing to fight. Um, and we can't go in and fight their, their battles for them. And I think, uh, you know, a new war would be disastrous for Joe Biden and for the United States. But China doesn't always need to know that. Yeah. So on that note, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, Chuck Todd talks about uh, Joe Biden's poll numbers, which are really, really low. There's only been one president in recent history who's had lower poll numbers at this point in time. Um, so I want to, you know, go through that, take a look at it and see what your, your response is and what it means for 2022 and potentially for 2024. That's filled with some scary news for the Democrats. The overarching message, Americans have lost their confidence in President Biden and their optimism for the country. At least they have right now. Just 22% of adults say we're headed in the right direction. A shocking 71% say we're on the wrong track. And that includes a near majority of Democrats who are saying that. President Biden's approval rating stands at a dismal 42% versus 54% who disapprove. Believe it or not, just two months ago, Mr. Biden was in positive territory. 49% approving, 48% disapproving. So what's pulling down the president's numbers? Well, look at this set of numbers. Just 37% say he has the ability right now to handle a crisis versus nearly a majority who say he does not. 37% also say he's competent and effective as president. 50% disagree with that description. All right. So what do you think about that? What do you think about Chuck Todd uh, bringing up Biden's abysmal poll numbers? Well, I always wonder about same party respondents who disapprove. So Democrats who disapprove of Biden, what is the centerpiece of their reason to oppose him? So like what, some of the things that we've seen in the crosstabs in a, in a variety of these polls is that there's a lot of disappointment with Biden when it comes to immigration and the border, and that's bipartisan. Now, I don't necessarily think that all means the same thing. It doesn't mean everyone is upset that our border is open. I imagine that there are Democrats, some of them, who are responding to this poll who think that Joe Biden's being too tough on the border, who think that Title 42 expulsions, to the extent that any of them are happening, is too much for them. Or they see this 
idea of like, you know, border patrol guys on the border allegedly whipping illegal immigrants when, again, there was actually no evidence to support that, but that became a big media frenzy. Um, that's the kind of thing that might register some opposition to Biden among Democrats who think that he's being too tough when it comes to border enforcement. Again, I don't really see that as a meaningful scenario, but I don't share their, their politics for sure. The other is um, that sort of the rampant disapproval we're seeing here, um, that people think that things are headed in the wrong direction. That something in like 72%, whatever, it was a number that he cited very early in the clip there. That's a huge number. And it does have to have the White House and certainly the political operations that surround the White House nervous. Uh, and I think, you know, I guess we'll get our first taste of whatever the electoral consequences are from that this week as a number of uh, states, just a few, go through their off off year elections, places like Virginia and New Jersey. Will there be some sort of backlash to Democrats in control of power in Washington? Um, right now, the numbers seem to suggest yes. Now, will that actually bear out? Hard, hard to say without it actually being done. Uh, but I think it could have a deep impact. One of, uh, I think it could play a major role in these races this week. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that people are in many ways, um, including Democrats and including uh, the somewhat left-leaning media. Uh, I think one of the mistakes that they're making is by, you know, or they've made is by hedging everything on Virginia. Um, to a lesser extent, some of the other states. I think that's that's just a mistake, and I think it's untrue that Virginia will be some sort of uh, bellwether, you know, bellwether for for the whole country. I, I just don't think that that's true. I do think that Joe Biden is going to pay a cost for uh, not being able to, which you know was probably outside of his control, but not being able to control the pandemic. Uh, the, the people who are upset about uh, the mandates and the vaccine mandates. And I think he will pay a major political cost for what got the ball rolling, which is Afghanistan. That's right. If you, so, look, at the, if you look at the polls, they all start diverging on Afghanistan. Absolutely. That's, that's, because that's there the was moment, no way to defend it. There, there that's was the literally, moment where disapproval went up meaningfully. Yeah, I mean, there was really no way to defend, it. you know what I mean? Uh, some of the mistakes that were made, there was no way to defend it, regardless of, and I think Democrats were smart enough to realize that even though, you know, Trump play, played a role in that, Joe Biden is the president of the United States, and that was done on his watch, and he's responsible. Um, and that's what he said is like, you know, the adults are in the room, et cetera, et cetera. I right. think a lot of this also, again, and I think a lot of media is dishonest, particularly right wing media is really dishonest. But the other thing is that Joe Biden and the Biden administration has been so incredibly terrible at communicating to the American people. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the last uh, segment when we were talking about, um, you know, some of the, the fact that he's been so constrained and they don't let him go off script. Um, I think some gaffes are fine. I think let, let, you know, Maria Bartiromo talk about, oh, Joe Biden stumbled. No, I mean, that's not even really the issue. I, I don't think that left-wing people and people 
who are in the center independents really care about how Maria Bartiromo is talking about Joe right. Biden. And I'm just using so, her name, not not her specifically. But so do you think Joe, do you think Biden should be out there more? Should he be talking to the press more? Uh, I don't think he necessarily needs to talk to the press more. Um, but I, I think, well, it depends on what you mean by talking to the press. Do I think he he should be out there uh, touting his agenda? Do I think he should bring it directly to the American people? Do I think that he should probably hold some, some rallies around the country? Yes. That's one thing that Donald Trump did so effectively. And Donald Trump, I have to say it, he is, I mean, he's no genius in any realm, but he's good at marketing. <laughs> you know, he's good at branding. He's not necessarily a good businessman, but he's good at that. And so he went, he made these, uh, you know, slogans, uh, whether it was, you know, build the wall or whatever it was, he took it directly to the American people. He went in front of friendly crowds and made it seem like they were fired up uh, about his agenda or whatever, you know, his agenda kind of moved around, but whatever it was at the moment. And that's what Joe Biden is missing. Build Back Better, when you break it down line item, is really popular with the American people. But it, there was a poll that came out that said 70% of Americans don't know what's in it. They just know Joe Biden. Nancy and so Pelosi they're, they're all like, uh, what is it? Uh, mm -hmm. Let's go Brandon. Because they don't even know what it is that they're against. And Nancy now they're saying- Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi was complaining about this phenomenon a couple of weeks ago. She said that the press is not doing a good enough job selling this. It's not the press's job. You know, that's your job. You need to sell it to the American people. The press will follow your lead. You better believe that Trump did not leave it up. Of course, he had his advocates. He had his obsequious bootlickers in the media. We know that. Um, but, and, and he, he expected that and they got their talking points directly from the White House. We know, we know all that. That's all fact. But he also took it directly to the American people. And that's what Bill Clinton did really well. That's what Obama did really well in, in some cases. And that is what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are failing at. And like I said, I've said this a million times, no one calls me. I'm the Daily Caller guy, so don't call me. You know, don't call Jason Nichols. He's, you know, he's a traitor. Well, I don't know what, <laughs> what it is they think about me. But like, I would have been saying this the whole time. Yeah. If you don't want to send Joe Biden out because he's a gaffe machine. That's what you're trying to groom Kamala Harris for. Get her out in front of friendly crowds. Get her out spreading the message. Just like, you know, those, uh, you know, right wing outlets would do wall to wall coverage of a Trump rally. Why aren't the Democrats doing that? They're talking about this policy that they can't get past. Uh -huh. And I guarantee you, if he had used some of his early political capital to make this happen, then you would have had, you know, more uh, support and less pushback from the Kirsten cinemas of the world. I guess but, there's a, but there's, there's the other point is like, I don't really know how much their enthusiasm there is out there for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And I'm, and I'm being serious. I don't mean to say that as a partisan point. I just don't know, like, could yeah, they no, actually I, fill a stadium? Are they, the, are the, are there, is there a lot of political enthusiasm for them? You know, Kamala Harris running in a presidential primary in California, the majority yeah. of respondents during the primary wanted her to leave the race. They wanted her out of the primary. And, you know, Joe was kind of seen as like a middling concession. And there was an effort to really axe Bernie Sanders in that Democratic primary. So right. Obama starts ringing up some phones, including Pete Buttigieg. It gets everybody to jump out at the same time in order to clear the decks for Joe. You know, it was 
I, I just don't know if he's going to be, if that's a way to sell his message, because I, I, I well, like what you what you need to see is that there is enthusiasm for him out there. And I don't know that there is. I mean, I think this what? polling demonstrates that there's a, a yawning enthusiasm gap and uh, yeah, it's sure. going to be hard to fill it. For sure. But but here's the thing. <clears throat> you do a rally in St. Louis. Uh-huh. Then you bring. Um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name now. Um I'm actually a big fan of hers, but she's a congresswoman from St. Louis. I, I don't know why I'm I'm having a senior moment. Corey Bush. Corey Bush, thank you. You bring Corey Bush. You go in into Vermont, you bring um Senator Sanders. That that's you bring Barack Obama. Barack Obama will go with you. And uh -huh. he's popular everywhere, still to this very day. Bring Michelle Obama. That's what you got to do in order to sell your agenda. And then you have, of course, Kamala Harris be, you know, the, the keynote there because you're trying to promote her. Um, so I, I really don't think there's an excuse for what yeah. they're doing. Um, can I, I think if the American people want a lot of these things and, and even the right wants it. That's the funny thing is that the right wants a lot of this stuff. The non-wealthy right, the people, the 99% that have a lot in common with the rest of us. Mm -hmm. they, they want these things that are in Build Back Better. So and there are elements, there are elements of this legislation, though, that, um, first of all, are a massive turnoffs to a lot of voters. So you're right, there are some things that poll, that poll well individually, but there's some things that poll abysmally. So for instance, the $600 IRS uh, threshold for the IRS to begin investigating your bank account. That is, if you spend or take in $600 within a given year, then that would flag your account for further examination so that the IRS may be in the position of auditing it. That's insane. So what ended up happening was, because there was pressure on that, that, that element, the legislation was changed. The threshold is now $10,000. So $10,000, not at once, for an entire year goes in or out of your account then the IRS gets a special flag that your account deserves extra scrutiny, potentially for auditing. That is still way too low. That is regressive. People will spend $10,000 paying rent in a given year, and you don't have to be rich to hit the $10,000 number. It's just, it's stuff like that. It's like when we're told, hey, I'm not going to raise taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000. Then all of a sudden, one of the elements here is for the IRS to give special scrutiny to somebody who moves $10,000 in or out of their own account over the course of an entire year. That's not going after the rich. That's not keeping the rich accountable. That's not trying to make sure that everybody's paying their fair share of taxes. That's hassling the little guy who can't afford an, uh, the, the tax attorneys to fight back against the IRS. So there are elements like this that get some attention. And rightfully so. I'm glad that got some attention. That are awful. That is just awful. Yeah, I think I think that was that was largely misunderstood. Um, I read that initially, and I had the same feelings. Like, what? You know, I have six hundred dollars in my account, and the, and they're going to be looking at what I spent it on and what I got it from, right. and all that. And that's actually not what happens, um, to my understanding. Um, I, I do think that. The primary thing that they're looking at is a billion is taxing billionaires. And I think most Americans believe that billionaires, Elon Musk, should not be paying a lower tax rate than me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and, and then any other American who's in the 99% or even the you know 
percent. Um, so I think it's it's you know something that you know of course there there are elements that could be worked out or or could be you know maybe these thresholds could be adjusted. But I certainly think that largely when you take it line item, largely these uh, are elements that the American people want. And it, and again, there there used to be, of course, you know, people would ask, do you agree with uh, Obamacare? And people would say, no, I think it's terrible. It's mm -hmm. the worst thing that ever happened to America. It's a disgrace. And then you break it down and you're like, do you care what do you, what do you think of the Affordable Care Act? Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I think it's great. <laughs> you know, most people want lower, uh, lower prescription drug prices. Most Americans want uh, for the expansion of Medicare into vision and dental. Uh, most Americans want uh, paid family leave. Most Americans and medical leave, by the way. These are things that the American people want, and I think it's it's something that we should do. And and I'll tell you this: one thing that Americans want is the protection of our veterans. And the company that we're actually wearing right now, you and I, are both wearing, is Grunt Style. And Grunt Style certainly protects our veterans. They employ hundreds of veterans. They do good work with veterans in terms of mental health and many and homelessness and many other concerns that veterans have. They have t-shirts, of course, you've got your, uh, your Marine t-shirt, Origins uh, t-shirt on. I've got my t-shirt that's non-political. I think that both Democrats and Republicans and independent people and progressives, we all love peeing outside. <laughs> and so it's that kind of t-shirt that Grunt Style makes that I think unifies America. So I think you should all go to gruntstyle.com, put in the promo code STN and get that 10% discount. Amen. Love those guys over at Grunt Style. Thank you to Grunt Style for supporting the show. Absolutely. Now, uh, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but Kamala Harris earlier had said that uh, Virginia was going to be a bellwether for the country. And of course that was, that was probably a popular sentiment when uh, Terry McAuliffe was clearly leading in the polls. But right now, as you said, there's a little bit of an enthusiasm gap. I think there's been a lot going on uh, in that race that has kind of shifted uh, public opinion a little bit. So let's take a look at what Kamala Harris said and uh, I'll get your comments on the other side. Yeah. Right. Let's not Texas, Virginia, because you see what happens in Virginia will in large part determine what happens in 2022, 2024 and on. So what do you think about Kamala Harris's comments? I think I've already kind of expressed how I feel about it, but I uh, want to get your your side of it. I, I honestly do think it's a bellwether. And what I mean by that is, like, if you're looking for a place where national political sentiment plays a role in a race, you're going to find it in Virginia. I mean, this is very close to Washington, D.C., obviously. Um, this is, you know, Virginia is, it's a blue state. A, a Republican has not won a statewide race since, I believe, 2010 uh, in Virginia. That, that just has not occurred. Um, and so as a result, you know, this, there's a real, this is a real uh, liability 
for Democrats uh, should Terry McAuliffe lose. Now, Terry McAuliffe there's a, is, is a bad candidate. So one of the reasons why he's, he could lose if he does lose this week is, is on his own um, volition. You know, to get up on a debate stage and to suggest that parents should not have a say in what their children are learning in schools when he said that they shouldn't be, you know, telling schools what their kids should and shouldn't learn. That is the kind of thing that is a devastating uh, act of self-injury by a politician. You don't say that to parents. You can rephrase that. You can he could have come up with something like parents do have a say at the ballot box by choosing the, the officials that are on the school board or anything else. But literally saying that parents shouldn't be in the business of telling schools what they should and shouldn't teach, that is an awful thing to say. So this is a this was an unforced error by Terry McAuliffe. Uh, and um, as a result, I think to whatever extent that you see him suffer on election day, I, look, I don't even know if this thing, I don't, this thing's not a foregone conclusion. This thing's a coin toss from where we're sitting right now on Monday. Uh, he could still win. But if he loses, one of the explanations for that will be the way that he treated uh, parents on the campaign trail. So again, so it's going to be his own campaign problems. And look, you know, Democrats didn't think that he'd really have that much of an issue. Again, as I said, this is a blue state. He's kind of a cutout for, for Democrats generically. He's about as establishment figure as he can get. He's very close to the Clintons. He's very close to the Biden cabinet. Um, he's, he's pretty synced up with establishment Democrats. He, they didn't need him to be a great candidate. They just needed him to be a generic Democrat. And they thought he could, he could wrap this thing up. Uh, and that just hasn't been the case. And I think one of the big drags on him, and he admitted this a couple of weeks ago when he said, you know, if only Washington would get a, would go ahead and hurry up and pass this infrastructure bill, that could in, that could improve my chances. Like he he claimed that um, in, a, in a call with campaign volunteers, uh, he said that the Biden administration and Democrats being in control of Washington is weighing on his race. Uh, so I think everyone involved here thinks it's a bellwether, and that includes Terry McAuliffe. So I would agree with uh, Kamala Harris here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree. Uh, I will tell you that I think that uh, this situation right now, um, well, first of all, I, I think this definition of red state, blue state, um, sometimes it isn't really accurate. Like, for example, I'm in Maryland, um, arguably one of the bluest states in the nation. Yes. Um, largest, one of the largest African-American populations in the nation, you know, except for, I think, you know, Washington, D.C., of course, not being a state. So we don't include it. If we don't include that, you know, you got Mississippi and I think it's Maryland. It, it, there might be one other state in the middle. Um, and yet our governors are Republican, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I, I don't necessarily think this this clear division, particularly with the type of Democrats that are in Virginia are largely conservative Democrats. So people like Abigail Spanberger and you know people who are center, very centrist, very moderate, always complaining about progressive ideas. So we're not talking about someone going, you know, a Republican winning in Massachusetts. We're talking about, like you said, a recently light blue state, if that. So I don't think this is a huge bellwether for the nation, just like when Maryland, one of the bluest states in the nation, elected a Republican twice um, to be its governor. I don't think that, you know, that changed Maryland from being a blue state. Now, as far as 2022, 
I think Democrats are going to bleed out anyway, because it's the first term of a sitting president. They always bleed out. So, you know, the, the sitting president's party always bleeds out. So Trump, you know, he got his tax bill, uh, which cost the country $8 trillion, but still he got that done and he still bled out 40 seats and lost the majority. Obama bled out damn near 60 seats, you know, in his first term. Uh, so, you know, and, and aided by, of course, the financial collapse that really wasn't his fault. Um, so I, I, I really think that when we're looking at this, this is what you said, and it's Terry McAuliffe and maybe some of the, the unforced errors that he may have made. Um, I don't think that this necessarily reflects on Joe Biden as much as it does on Terry McAuliffe and the type of campaign he ran and just depending upon uh, the appearances of certain people uh, to carry his, his campaign. Um, I do think Democrats, again, nationwide, want, one of the reasons they're gonna bleed out seriously, I think at least 25 seats is what I'm guessing. Um, one of the reasons, and maybe more, it, it's possible, it could be more. Um, one of the reasons why I think that's happening goes back to what I said earlier, and it's awful messaging. Now, there's no way to message Afghanistan. Like, that was just failure. But there are other ways to message what's going on right now, to, to sell, build back better, put them in a better negotiating spot. But they didn't, you know, and they're continuing to fail this way. And this is why I think they're going to struggle in 2022 and maybe in 2024 if they don't right the ship and take their message to the American people. Yeah, I just I just to, I guess I'll just reiterate my first point. I just think that, you know, this is the first opportunity that voters in Virginia have since the presidential election to register their feeling not only towards the candidates who are actually on the ballot, but the parties in question as well. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see a meaningful blowback to Democrats here for the very reasons that you kind of just laid out. You often expect blowback after um, an incumbent president takes office. It may take form, not just in the midterms next year, but right now in Virginia. Okay. Well, uh, Newt Gingrich has some ideas about that. He was on Fox News with Maria Bartiromo talking about it. So let's take a look at what Newt Gingrich had to say over and over again, because she just said, basically, if Youngkin wins, it means a disaster for the Democrats in 22 and 24. I happen to think she's right. There will be a disaster because they're too far to the left. They're spending too much money and they're too alienated from the American people. Uh, something uh, which, which Selena Zito wrote a brilliant column on this morning that they just don't get it. Uh, and I saw this yesterday. I, I was watching uh, Georgia uh, uh, win over Florida. Sorry to say that to my Florida friends. But uh, I watched a lot of commercials for both uh, Terry McAuliffe and for Glenn Youngkin. And what was fascinating was McAuliffe's commercials are very political. Glenn Youngkin's talking about real life. He's talking about jobs. He's talking about children. He's talking about safety. He's talking about schools. So the difference in the two commercials, the sets of commercials, I saw about 12 or 14 of them, was remarkable and I think partially explains why McAuliffe is losing. He, he's lost in a, a world of fantasy that really matters to left-wing Democrats, but doesn't matter to the average Virginian. 
All right, we'll get to our reaction to the former Speaker of the House in just a moment. But first, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by GoldCo. So Vince, what do you, what do you think about uh, Newt Gingrich's assessment there? Well, I, I think when it comes to uh, the campaign ads and the messages these guys are running on, Terry McAuliffe has had a real problem getting his message to take hold, even in the media. So he's what McAuliffe has tried to do in these waning weeks of the election is you remember um, in uh, Mortal Kombat, there was a character called Liu Kang. You remember that character? Mm -hmm. And like so in Liu, Liu Kang's signature move was the sweeping leg kick. So like like what you do is like you get your opponent up against the wall and they just keep sweeping leg kicking them and they can't get up. They can't jump. They can't move. And it's the same move you use over and over and over and over again. And then you win. And that's it. Fatality. It's the end of the fight. McAuliffe is under the impression that his Liu Kang sweeping leg kick is to say the name Trump over and over and over and over and over again. So much so that there was a, you know, you had Barack Obama, excuse me, Joe Biden come to town um, uh, recently, about a week ago. And when he did, I believe it was like a 17 minute speech he gave and he mentioned Trump's name 24 times. Now, this is not a Trump race. This is a race between Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuliffe and the, and the array of candidates who are on the, I'll just say the undercard, uh, but you know, running uh, alongside uh, both of them. But what McAuliffe needs to do, kind of your, to your point about messaging, is he realizes that Trump is unpopular in Northern Virginia. And by invoking his name, he might be able to get enough Northern Virginia voters out in order to bring him over the top. So he has to keep saying it. And so the end result has been that when he sits down to do these interviews with various outlets, uh, he's been cutting them off short. So um, there was a local television interview uh, that was done recently where uh, Glenn Youngkin sat for 20 minutes. So McAuliffe's campaign is like, okay, now we want our 20 minutes. So McAuliffe sits down. He only makes it 10 minutes. He only makes it 10 minutes because the questioner is not you know, playing ball with his talking points and he just bails on the interview. In fact, not him personally, but one of his aides is like, all right, that's enough. We're done. We got to go. Leaves. He did the same thing with Axios. Axios did an interview with him and they wrote about this. They asked, hey, tell us about your strategy of constantly trying to Glenn, trying to tie Glenn Youngkin to Trump. And he goes, I'm not tying Youngkin to Trump. Youngkin's tying himself to Trump. And they cut off the interview. They, they bailed on it again because- Really, it gets at a central point, which is that McAuliffe is very reliant on this, and it's just not working. It's, it hasn't been working for him. Uh, and that is really the theme. I, I'm on his email list, man. I get all of his emails. It's always about Trump, and, and it's not about Yunkin. Whereas Yunkin, the campaign he's running on, is actually an issues-based campaign. He's running, on, he's running on schools and parents and, you know, and COVID. And it's it's culture war stuff. You know, he's running on all that culture war stuff. Oh, critical race theory. He's pushing oh. back. He's pushing back on the culture war. Yeah, no, no, he is feeding into the culture war. But either, either way, I think you're right um, that I think we've got a little bit of Trump fatigue in, in, the, in the Democratic Party. And I think one of the things that um, I believe it was Jon Stewart said is like, all right, like Trump's, Trump's a dirtbag, but you know, we can't make everything about Trump or else we keep Trump relevant. Like we need to start running on what it is that we believe in. You know, one of the things that I always stand for is instead of always talking about what you're against, start selling what it is that you're for, you know? And 
you know, if if Glenn Youngkin wanted to go out there, uh, excuse me, not Glenn Youngkin, if Terry McAuliffe wanted to go out there and say, this is what I stand for, this is what I'm going to do, and this is my plan for schools, you know, like, I think people would respond to that. And, you know, you can throw a Trump dig in there every now and again, or say, you know, compare. I think one of the things that Kamala Harris said, you know, strategically, that Kamala Harris said that uh, I think would have resonated with a lot of Northern Virginia uh, families and Northern Virginia um, individuals, particularly the ones that carry Democrats to victory, is maybe not use Trump, but use some of these Republican governors who, are, who have failed their states on lots of things, including COVID. So use uh, someone like Kemp or use Abbott or use, um, you know, Asa Hutchinson or use uh, Governor Ivey in, in Alabama and say, look, do you want this for Virginia? Do you want that kind of leader for Virginia? Because that's what Glenn Youngkin is going to bring to your state. And I think that could be something because those people are actually in office, you know, but when you keep bringing up Trump, strategically speaking, I think that's a bad idea. You know, I, that's, that's not the way forward because I think Democrats have Trump fatigue a little bit. You know what I mean? Like even hearing Trump's name doesn't motivate me the same way. It's like if everybody were at those, you know, events screaming, go Trump, you know, you know, I think that would be less concerning to me than, than the, you know, let's go Brandon, which is still not concerning to me. I think it's all stupid, but the point being, you know, you want to make it so that you advocate what you're for rather than who you're against. Right. And I think people will gravitate to that. Doesn't mean that you can't ever go negative because Glenn Youngkin is literally running nothing but a negative campaign. I don't think he said what it is he's for. He's just like, you know, I'm against critical race theory. I'm against this. I'm against that. Why don't you tell people what you're for yeah. and what the stakes are? And well, it can't just be Trump. It's got to be Glenn Youngkin and tie him to some of these, these uh, Republican governors who have failed other states and say, Virginia is a good state. We don't want to yep. be like those other places. Now, I, maybe this, this might just be the product of me being very close to the story because I, I host a radio show that covers a lot of Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. But I, I am familiar with the stuff that Yunkin is for, the things like giving back the multi-billion dollar surplus uh, that Virginia is sitting on right now because of COVID relief money. He wants to send a lot of that out to Virginians. He wants to eliminate the grocery tax. You know, right now, D.C. and Maryland don't tax groceries, but Virginia does. And you go in, you pay a, a tax on your grocery purchases. Uh, he wants to get rid of that in, in Virginia. And that's, that's appealing to some people. Uh, but you're right. It's not one of the things that makes the national headlines. Like when we read uh, or listen to or see national news stories, those types of positive sort of like, here's what I'm for. Or here's how I want to uh, take care of Virginians. They, they rarely make their way into the headlines. Right. Now, uh, one thing that did make the headlines uh, is Joe Biden, who is a practicing Catholic, a devout Catholic, uh, got to meet the Pope. I'm sure this isn't the first time he's met the Pope, but he got to uh, speak with the Pope and uh, people had a reaction to it. So let's take a look. Thank you for that. It was a famous 
African American baseball player in America. I know. Americano, Afro-Americano. And he didn't get to play in the Major League Baseball until he was 45 years old because he was black. Non gli hanno permesso di giocare nella lega principale fino a che aveva 45 anni perché era nero. He was a pitcher. E lui era un quello che batteva. And usually pitchers lose their arm when they're 35. In genere loro non guadagnano comincia. He pitched to win on his 47th birthday. E invece the press walked in the locker room and said his name was Satchel Page. Si chiamava Satchel Page. Allora gli giornalisti sono andati nello spogliatoio. The commanding said, Satch, no one's ever pitched to win at age 47. How do you feel about pitching to win on your birthday? E tutti hanno detto, nessuno ci è mai riuscito a fare questo a 47 anni. Come ti senti averlo fatto il giorno del tuo compleanno? And he looked at me and said, boys, that's not how I look at age. I'm sorry, what is it? Boys, that's not how I look at age. Dice, ragazzi, non si guarda all'età. I look at it this way. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Quanto vecchio saresti se tu non sapessi quanto vecchio sei? You're 65, I'm 60. Lei ha 65 anni e io ho 60. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Grazie signora. Okay, so Joe Biden tells a story about Satchel Paige who played, I think until his late 50s, played professional baseball. Um... And I'm not sure what was so controversial about that. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Was there something I, 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 I missed I it not, if there was controversy? I would be I'd be concerned if I was trying to tell a story with a funny punchline that I had a translator working on it for me. I'd be like, yeah. that doesn't it's not a, jokes, it's not easy to do that. Yeah. Jokes don't really translate into other languages. And, and as a matter of fact, everybody, you can watch our interview with uh, Victor Davis Hansen. And that was one of the points that I made is that, you know, things don't translate you know, across very well oftentimes. Um, so I think it's, you know, him trying to tell that joke and then waiting for the person to say it. Um, <laughs> Could you imagine? You know, it doesn't really work. I have a baseball story for you. It involves the Caribbean. I was down in um, the Dominican Republic uh, when I was in high school. I went two years uh, running and we stayed for about a week each time. And when I got there, uh, one of the the obvious sports that is played all over the Dominican Republic, everywhere you go is there's baseball fields. There's like baseball fields everywhere, but also in the streets, like the kids play some version of stickball. Now I say some version because I remember the kids I was with, like they barely had a stick. They, I, they had a broomstick of some kind, but they definitely didn't have a ball. They had nothing. They had no ball to hit. So they had these amazing kind of innovative substitutes. One was at one point, it was just a doll's head with the hair ripped out. And like, you know, <laughs> just like whipping a plastic doll's head, just cranking it with a broomstick. And the kids playing, they, they marked out bases on the street, everything. And it was cool to play with them. The crazier one was the kids were, were throwing Gatorade caps as baseballs. So they would wow. take a Gatorade cap and they'd hold it like this. And then they'd whip it like a little disc and they'd fly it through the air like a Frisbee. And then you just crank it. You have to make contact with this thin little Gatorade cap, make contact with a stick and crush it. And then... They're literally throwing it from base to base as a frisbee, just using the using the old finger flick. And I was like, "Damn, no wonder they create these great baseball players! Yeah, right. Like they 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 got this like high intensity sort of like low resource training." And the kids were awesome. It was it was a lot of fun, but it was it was crazy to see. Anyway, so that was my first hand look at where baseball grades are made. <laughs> yeah, no, ab absolutely, and and you know, I was it was pretty interesting last night. 
uh, watching the World Series and you see they had two Dominicans up there um, doing the commentary. You know, you had four people. Uh, two of them were Dominican. You know, obviously two, Lati two Latinos, one African-American. I thought it was uh, really diverse and it's good for baseball to, to see that because one of the things that we've seen is there's a dearth of African-American players and it'll be interesting. I tell all my, you know, all the football players, I'm like, yo, if you can run a four, three, you should have played baseball. <laughs> like you would be making millions and you could play until you're 45. Yeah. You know, who are the guys? Uh, who, there's a couple of NFL players who also played baseball, right? There was a uh, Barry uh, Bonds. Deion right? Sanders. Didn't Deion, didn't Barry Bonds also play? I know Deion Sanders did. Yeah. Deion Sanders, uh, Bo Jackson. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a, there have been a couple of guys who played both. Um, yeah, you, nah, maybe I'm getting Barry confused. I don't know. He, yeah. he didn't play NFL. I don't think Barry Sanders did, but you know, again, uh, baseball is such a beautiful game. It was, you know, I, I've never really played it, but you know, just watching it, it's such a beautiful game. It's a you cool know? game. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan, and uh, hopefully, you guys out there are checking out the World Series. You know, it's America's pastime, and we are America's show. That's where we're branding ourselves. We're America's show. Amen. We wear America's gear from Grunt Style. Uh, and um, we try to do what America should do. And that is, you know, civil discourse, you know, left and right, at least speaking to one another, even if we don't always agree. Um, so just want to say peace. Check us out on all podcast platforms. Excuse me, doing a little bit of Joe Biden there. Um, <laughs> On all podcast platforms, of course, on YouTube, on Facebook, watch, check us out, give us those views, tell your friends, we need it. And uh, hopefully you guys are doing well and living in peace and continue to watch Vince and Jason save the nation. Peace out.